0: and incoming transmission have you ever just bought a new book and thought to yourself man i wish i could just ask the author every question i want about this book well that's what we're doing today radical christian what is up radical christians today we have an exciting episode we get to talk to a person who is one of the inspirations for this channel whose work was the basis for a lot of this channel's videos. He is one of the two authors of the new book Veneration out now I read this entire thing and if you don't believe me look there's highlights all the way through it you can't just go and highlight a book without reading it it doesn't work that way the highlighter won't work so boom today we're gonna talk all about this book And for our paid content, we are going to do an overview of this book. The fiction version of all the books we research. So, without further ado, I bring to you a man of many titles. The host of Skywatch TV. The host of View from the Bunker. The Earl of Aubrey. The Lord of Hamesbury. And husband to Sharon Gilbert. I bring you Sir Derek Gilbert. Alright, so... Today, we're welcoming Derek Gilbert, and it is no secret that this channel takes a lot of its inspiration from your work, Derek. So I'm glad to have you on to talk about, you know, all the the crazy things you put forth in your
1: research. Well, Drew, it's it's an honor to be here. It's my honor. And believe me, no one was more surprised than me when I found Radical Christian and say, wait a minute, he's reading my stuff and you, what? So (laughs) (laughs) thank you, I, I am
0: honored. So the one of the books that I mention or I recommend to anybody who I'm talking to who wants to get deeper into the word and all that is Michael Heiser's Unseen Realm so they can get the foundation yeah, so- for, for all the spiritual side of this, this battle we're in. And then the next book I always recommend is Last Clash of the Titans because it really brings forth all the, the, the mythology that we're taught and how it actually has basis in truth. Now mm-hmm. this one is the one that's second. Now this is the one I recommend, I'm going to be recommending second. So I read this whole thing, I'm sure you can see, but there's green highlighters all the way through the uh, the entire thing. But yeah, so let's get right into it. What inspired you to write Veneration?
1: Well, actually, this was another one of Sharon's great ideas, and uh, credit to her for for suggesting this. Because as we researched, not only for my books, Last Clash of the Titans, The Great Inception, Bad Moon Rising, um, but the research that she's done for her fictional series, The Red Wing Saga, we keep coming up with the importance of the Nephilim, and it's not so much that they were giants, but it's what kind of deviant worship they inspired. So, I guess to put it in, in a you know pithy phrase, it's not their stature, it's their nature. Pending on the trademark there. Um, <laughs> Because God bless guys like L.A. Marzulli and Steve Coyle and Tom Horn who've been out there physically looking for remains and physical evidence to prove the existence of the giants rather than trying to recreate the work that they did. And, and the research that we did in looking at what the pagan nations around ancient Israel believed, we keep coming across references to what can only be the Nephilim. They went by different names in different cultures, mainly among the Amorites. They were called Rephaim. And that word shows up in the Bible. In fact, they're called Rephaim when the Israelites arrive and uh, God has said, okay, now's the time for you to take the Holy Land, you know, take the Promised Land. Uh, their very first target is Og, the king of Bashan, who was described in the book of Deuteronomy as the last of the remnant of the Rephaim. But we see them mentioned even earlier in Genesis chapter 15, or 14 rather, which is that weird story about the, uh, the abduction of Abraham's nephew Lot from the city of Sodom. We had four kings come from the east, from Mesopotamia, from, from Persia, or what is modern Iran. Uh, a two-month march across Mesopotamia to come down and do battle with this uh, coalition near the Dead Sea. But on the way, they had to defeat tribes of Rephaim along the king's highway, starting around uh, and east of the Sea of Galilee at uh, Ashtaroth and Edrei, which later was the kingdom of Og of Bashan. And then at what later became Ammon, Moab, and Edom they were fighting. So the Rephaim were living tribes considered to be of larger-than-average stature who lived east of the Jordan River in the days of Abraham. But by the time of Moses and Joshua, they'd all been wiped out except for Og of Bashan. He was the last one. But like I said, as it turns out the neighboring pagans around ancient Israel knew who these Rephaim were. They weren't invented by Moses to demonize the, the people that Israel was trying to push out of the Holy Land. I mean, that's a political move that you see, you know, even it, within living memory of, you know, here here in America. We, we ha- have done that. When you go back and watch, say, Warner Brothers cartoons from World War II, see how they portray Japanese people, for example. Mm-hmm. That's just one example. See how they portray Germans. You know, uh, my, my grandparents, who were very young during World War One remember being treated differently because they were of German descent. I mean, it wasn't as bad as it might have been somewhere else because they were living around a lot of other Germans. But still, you know, we we tend to do this as people. When we go to war with somebody, some other group, we tend to demonize that other group. And so scholars through the ages have sort of tended to think that Moses and the Israelites did the same thing with the people they were trying to push out of Canaan. In fact, archaeologists have speculated for years when they come across megalithic structures in and around Israel that, oh, this must be the reason that Moses invented the giants that are described in the Bible. Well, it turns out that's not the case, because we now know, just within the last 50 years from texts that have been translated by scholars that weren't available to the great theologians of, uh, say, before 1950 even, that uh, the Rephaim were venerated by the pagan neighbors of ancient Israel. And furthermore, that veneration was a snare, a trap, that drew in a lot of Israelites. It's condemned specifically in the Bible. Um, Isaiah especially writes against it, and I think it's because a couple of the kings that he personally knew got drawn into this. But the bottom line is, and I'm taking the long way around to get to this point, we think the book Veneration fills in a big gap in what we Christians have been taught about this spiritual war and the role of these principalities and powers, thrones and dominions that Paul wrote about. I mean, he describes the gods of the pagans, some of them anyway, as demons. In veneration, we go into the origin of the demons, how the demons were worshipped by the pagan uh, nations around ancient Israel, and uh, what role these demons are prophesied to play in the end times. I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, the Nephilim are in there, if you know what you're looking for. So,
0: what exactly is the term, what is the definition of the term veneration? Veneration. What do you mean by that?
1: It's it's worship, basically. It's um, appealing to entities in the spirit realm for their assistance and uh, intervention in our own lives. It's not necessarily worship per se, but it's offering sacrifice, uh, you know, gifts to the spirit realm uh, in exchange, in, in hopes that they'll do something for you in the physical realm. We see this in um, some of the folk saints in Mexico, for example, like Santa Muerte, or uh, the veneration of ancestors that we see in Asian cultures today, in African cultures, where little gifts of food or drink are left for at, at, at altars to these entities. It's not quite the same as worshiping God, but still you're offering, uh, say to Santa Muerte, you, uh, you might offer a gift of tequila or cigarettes or candy or something, hoping that this saint death will do something for you in the spirit realm. Uh, and there are others like that uh you see the same thing with little uh, household shrines to the ancestors in certain asian cultures where gifts of food or or candy are left for the uh, the ancestors hoping to please them so that they will you know intervene in the physical realm in the natural realm and make things easier for you
0: so how much sway do these beings
1: have in in this realm how, how much can they actually do for these people well think of think of it as is like a three-tiered Reality. where on the, the, the bottom level is is the physical realm. That's where we humans live. And I'm, I'm actually drawing this uh, illustration from an o- object that was left in the tomb of a, a, an Amorite king around the time of Abraham. Uh, and it kind of depicts the spirit realm. And again, this is another illustration that the Rephaim were known to the pagans in the... the Days of the patriarchs, not just invented by Moses. So, in the, the lower level in this illustration, you've got us walking around in the physical realm, the living. Then, in the upper tier, you've got the gods. Again, this is from a pagan worldview, circa, you know, 1800 BC. That's occupied in their minds by Baal and Uh, Astarte, and uh, Reshef, the plague god, and Mot, the god of death, and you know, basically all of their pantheon occupies that top level. Then in between, you've got spirits who aren't quite as powerful as the gods, but who can still mess with you if you don't make them happy, or who can do things for you to grant you favor. And there are a couple of classes within that realm. The occupants of that realm, by the way, and we see this in the Bible as well, are called Elohim, now, we've all been taught as Christians that there's only one Elohim. That's capital E Elohim, capital G God. That's not how the ancient Hebrews saw the, the spirit realm. It's not how their pagan neighbors saw it. Uh, the Amorites had a, 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 the same term, pronounced a little differently, but essentially it was the same word as Elohim. And as Mike Heiser describes it in the Unseen Realm, I think he explains it very well, there are many Elohim. Essentially Elohim is just an a, a occupant of the spirit realm but there's only one capital E Elohim. I use the example of um, uh, the political situation in Ireland around the time of uh, the birth of Jesus. They had many kings, but only one high king. And that's sort of the way uh, the spirit realm was perceived by the Hebrews and their pagan neighbors. It's just the, uh, the pagan neighbors, they believed that they had a pantheon of gods who were squabbling with each other, whereas the Hebrews, the Jews and early Christians understood, yes, there's capital G God, Yahweh, and there are other small g gods, fallen angels. And then there's a difference then with with demons being the spirits that proceeded from the uh, the Nephilim on their deaths. What these spirits, these Elohim, these lesser Elohim, the spirits of the ancestors to the pagan, which we show in veneration, were actually just the demons, that uh, the lying demons that came from the Nephilim, the pagans believed that they needed to appease them through regular sacrifice. Uh, The Amorites had a custom called the Kispum, K-I-S-P-U-M. It was a monthly ritual that they performed every month on the 30th. Uh, was a lunar calendar, so the 30th of the month was the night of no moon. Not new moon where you see that first sliver, it's night of no moon, totally dark, because that's the night, they believed, that the veil between the worlds was thinnest. And so on that night was the duty of the heir of the family, usually the eldest son, to serve a ritual meal for the dead ancestors. And you had to summon them by name. It was necromancy. You were summoning the dead by name to a meal. Now, we remember the story from, um, you know, the story of Jacob he uh, had to work 14 years to get his two wives, one of whom he didn't really want. But when he fled from his father-in-law Laban, Rachel, I believe, took the uh, the household gods from Laban that's what these were, the teraphim, the household gods. They represented the spirits of the ancestors. They gave the uh, spirits locality when they answered the call to this, this monthly meal. And so when Smear would take the bread and smear it on the face of, that's how you fed, you know, dead grandpa. And then, and then you would pour out water for them to drink. In fact, this was so important that the, that the heir to the family, the oldest son, was literally called the pourer of water. Or the son of the cup, the one who had the responsibility for performing this ritual every because if you didn't, if you didn't, your ancestors were to wander through the afterlife eating only dust and clay. Your happiness in the afterlife depended on how faithful your descendants were at performing this ritual. And they found many, many texts that document this. In fact, one of the other odd things about the Amorite culture, and by by the way, when we say Canaanite, uh, that's just a geographic term. The Amorites basically controlled everything around the Holy Land in the in the Old Testament period. So the Canaanites, except for the Moabites, Edomites, Anamonites, who were the you know relatives of Israel. But the Canaanites, the Babylonians, they were they were all Amorites. Um, they didn't have cemeteries per se. Archaeologists have noticed that, you know even though they've dug up a lot of stuff from the Amorites, They've not yet found a communal cemetery, community cemetery that they can put on the Amorite. They buried all of their ancestors right below the floor of the house. They would dig a hole in the house, bury, you know, dad, grandpa there. And apparently to minimize the distance, they had to travel to get back for the Kispum meal. Because if you didn't feed them, they'd get angry and you wouldn't like dead grandpa when he's angry, apparently. But they would even go so far as to install a uh, what they call a libation tube in the floor. When they buried the body, they would put a tube directly down, you know, to the head. So you could pour the water down the tube and get it right to the body. But that was part of their culture. They firmly believed this. And that kind of explains why Abraham was so stressed about not having an heir by the time he was 90 years old. I mean, He didn't understand death in the afterlife the way God revealed it later to the prophets and to the apostles. He was still operating with that Amorite mindset. I don't have... Eliezer of Damascus will be my, my heir. And here's an interesting thing. This is, again, one of the little tidbits that we stumbled onto during all this research. A scholar by the name of Nicholas Wyatt from University of Edinburgh, who's done a lot of research into the Amorites, says that it's probable, in his view, that the Hebrew phrase translated Eliezer of Damascus, which in Hebrew is ha-damashek, was probably a correction by a later scribe who didn't understand or didn't remember the culture and the customs of the Amorites from hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. And that the phrase was probably Ben Meshek, which means son of the cup. My servant wow. Eleazar will be my son of the cup. He's gonna be the one, and he's not even my blood relative. What incentive will he have to feed me after I die? Wow! I mean, literally, they found wills from people without children dying childless, who actually hiring companies to perform the rituals for them after they die, so they wouldn't starve to death after death. That's how important this was. So that, that's how ingrained in the minds of the cultures around Israel this was. And this continued for centuries after Israel moved into Canaan. So I, I remember from reading the book that you mentioned you found a
0: lib- libation tube in a very unsuspecting place. Oh, it, I think it was well.
1: Yeah, St. Peter's, Peter's Basilica was that it, right? One of the things that we we found in our research for veneration was that this this mindset of having to appease the ancestors, having to feed them and, and you know water them, continued into the Christian era, and you know, researchers have found that after Constantine, the Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity in the fourth century, the first half dozen or so churches that were built in Rome. After, the, after Christianity was legalized, were built right in the middle of cemeteries. And it was so, and they, f- they documented this by finding the bones left over from the ritual meals that were held in these now Christianized cemeteries in Rome, that people were, were they were built in the middle of cemeteries so that the families, the Christian families, could continue these rituals. Even wow. though Christian teachers were saying, look, we don't do that anymore it was so ingrained in the culture around the whole Mediterranean that this was a regular thing. I mean, Drew, this is what th- this veneration of the Rephaim, the, the, which the Rephaim is just another name for the spirits of the dead Nephilim. Uh, a scholar by the name of Omar Anus showed that the uh, the Greek demigod heroes were actually just transplanted, was transplanted veneration of the, the, uh, the Canaanite Rephaim, the Amorite Rephaim. The Greeks took it and it became the veneration of their demigods like theseus and perseus and cadmus and bellerophon greek and roman religion moved from mesopotamia from canaan through asia minor to greece and then to rome so you know these demigods like heracles hercules by definition as a son of zeus was one of the nephilim rephaim the heroes of the greeks were venerated the same way communal meals held outside their tombs, and this continued into Rome into the fourth century AD. In fact, it's what inspired Saint Augustine, who is responsible, ironically enough, for kind of diverting Christian theology away from understanding that the Nephilim of Genesis 6 really existed, and that their spirits upon death became the demons that uh, afflict the world to this day. What he did, however, was he Christianized the practice of Rephaim veneration and made it the veneration of the saints. He essentially, paraphrasing what he wrote, but he's essentially wrote that, uh, you know, the, the, the spirits of the righteous can intercede for us just as the pagans believe their ancestors do. but this, the, the spirits of the righteous can intercede for us. And so because they couldn't put a stop to it, they basically redirected it and it became the veneration of the saints which is still goes to on to this day in the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Churches of the East
0: it always amazes me that you that if you want to see these pagan practices in the bible you have to look no further than what's going on today or the the, the catholic religion as a whole usually
1: cuz you could see the same things going on it's insane we 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 see some of this too even in in some of our practices as uh, as protestants and, and sometimes we don't even recognize that that's what we're doing. I mean, um, yeah, it would be easy to point a finger at the Roman Catholic Church or the Orthodox Churches, but, uh, you know, the idea that, um, well, the only, ex- let, me, let me just say this, the only example we have in the Bible of a human spirit coming back and interacting with the living is when Samuel was granted permission by God to deliver a message to Saul. Now, the late Chris Putnam documented a few other cases in his book, The Supernatural Worldview, that suggests that maybe this happens where God grants permission to a spirit to deliver a message but it's not the standard practice. We don't see human spirits hanging around on earth intervening with the living, interacting with the living. That's not the way it's normally done. I mean it is appointed unto a man once to die and then judgment. But yeah there, there were definitely some things as the Roman Catholic Church got into the fourth, fifth, sixth centuries. Pagan practices that we can trace back to the Amorites and from there, even back to, further to Sumer, uh, wound up inside the, uh, wound up inside the church. Uh, earlier you mentioned the Greeks. I think one of the most
0: important parts of of your body of work that, that you brought forth was the connection to the, the Greek Titans. And can, would you mind briefly going over that? Because I feel like when, when that is unlocked for people, that's, that's almost on the same level as, like I mentioned, um, the basic fundamentals of the spiritual realm from unseen realm. I think that that's the next logical piece of uncovering what's going on in the world around us.
1: Well, Titans in Greek mythology were gods who succeeded the, the first tier gods, the, the original generation of gods, which uh, was Uranos, the sky God and Gaia, mother earth. Uh, they gave birth to a number of, um, entities, some of which were really monstrous, like the hundred handers and, uh, you know some other really hideous things that were kind of locked away in Tartarus, but uh, the uh, the the Titans chose to rebel against their their father Uranus because he, according to the myth, was mistreating Mother Earth, and so the youngest of the uh, male Titans, born, Kronos, uh, agreed to rebel and castrated the sky god Uranus with a uh, adamantine sickle. Um, in in my view, this is sort of a twisted way of uh, this fallen realm. Uh, telling the pagans of the ancient world that, oh yeah, that sky god who created all of us, yeah, he's impotent now. We we took over. You know, he's been castrated. He's powerless now. So mm. uh, anyway, Kronos was told by Gaia, according to the myth, that one of his children would overthrow him as well. And so when he and his wife Rhea had uh, children, uh, Kronos would take them and immediately eat them. By the time Zeus was born, who I think was number seven on the list, Rhea had... Being a sharp lady, had figured out a pattern. <laughs> it, it, was it took more than one, who knows. <laughs> but when Zeus was born, she wrapped a stone in cloth and gave that to Kronos and he swallowed that instead. Um, fast forward, Zeus, as an adult, raised in secret, comes back, rebels against uh, Kronos and the Titans, gets him to cough up his siblings. They fight a long war and eventually prevail. Uh, Kronos and the Titans are banished to Tartarus. Uh, now, this is not Hades. Don't confuse the two. Hades is where run-of-the-mill dead uh, go after death. We Human dead go to Hades. Tartarus was, was reserved for special threats to the divine order. Now, in the New Testament, 2 Peter 2, verse 4, Peter makes reference to uh, angels who sinned. You know, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. But the English word hell doesn't really capture the Greek word behind it, which is Tartarau. Uh, again, credit Mike Heiser for pointing this out. Tartarau literally means thrust down to Tartarus. Now, surely Peter who lived in a Hellenized world Greek at the time was the, the language of uh, uh, with the lingua franca. He knew the difference between Hades and Tartarus. I mean, Besides, he was writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So he chose that word deliberately. The only place we know of angels sinning, other than the the rebel from Eden, of course, in Genesis 3, is Genesis 6. These angels who descended on Mount Hermon, according to the book of Enoch, and who took human wives and corrupted the human bloodline, taught us things we weren't supposed to know. Mike Heiser does an excellent job in reversing Hermon, in showing that the ministry of Jesus was not just to, you know, save us from our sins, which of course is critical, but also to reverse the evil that these uh, watchers taught humanity, you know, making weapons and uh, the art of war, sorcery, uh, necromancy, root cutting, telling future, and so on, on. things we weren't supposed to know. So for that, according to Peter, they were cast down to Tartarus. Now, all right, we've got a connection there. The Titans banished to Tartarus, angels who sinned thrust down to Tartarus. Um, You've also got a similar parallel, well, a parallel story from ancient Mesopotamia. Of sages called Apkalu. And uh, again, a scholar by the name of Amar Anus showed in a paper from 2010, so this is not even 10 years old, that um, the Apkalu were the Mesopotamian conception of the Watchers, that uh, what they did, the role that they played, and their ultimate fate being banished to the abyss tracks with what we read in Greek mythology, but also what we see in the Bible if we take Second Peter and put it alongside Genesis 6 and then allow for the book of Enoch to kind of amplify our understanding of what took place there. So the titans of Greek mythology, we argue in, you know, I argue, last clash of the titans and then have kind of repeated this in other works because I think it's important. Uh, we should identify as the watchers who sinned, those who came down to Mount Hermon, uh, the watchers who took human women, Genesis 6, uh, procreated and kind of inflicted their their progeny on the earth. The Nephilim, uh, the giants, the mighty men of renown, and and then the spirits that proceeded from them, which, according to the book of Enoch, were barred the usual entry into the normal afterlife for spirits, but were condemned to wander the earth until the judgment. Now, uh, again, I think those things, the evidence fits. Even the Greek Greek, uh, uh, poet theologians like uh, Hesiod and Homer understood that demons, or is it demons, proceeded from the spirits of these mighty men, the demigods, who lived during the Golden Age when Kronos ruled in heaven. So, I, I think the evidence all fits that these Nephilim spirits on death became the demons that uh, are still with us to this very day, and as uh, Ezekiel prophesied in his prophecy of the War of Gog and Magog, uh, they still have a role to play in the end times. So when you made that connection,
0: did that like completely blow your mind or like cause you to just stop and contemplate it for a while?
1: Yeah, I, I was always really interested in Greek mythology when I was a kid. I mean, I'm sure like most people we had to study it in high school or I think it was high school. I forget I forget when our daughter was fascinated by the by the stories as well. The things that we read in um the versions we were given in school were cleaned up a lot. When you start reading what the greek poets wrote back in the day it's a lot bloodier and a lot more cruel than uh, than we were taught and when you start reading what archaeologists have found and what historians from the classical period period you know the greek and roman historians of the first second third centuries wrote uh, you find out that there were a lot of things that uh, these people did in service of their gods that you, you don't get when you're reading um the texts that we were assigned in high school or if you get your your Greek mythology, like a lot of kids today do, from uh, say Percy Jackson and the Olympians, <laughs> it's it's not like that at all. It's pretty brutal. A lot of a lot of human sacrifice going on. When you mention these these beings were
0: put in Tartarus, and then you you have the shades in Sheol, and then you have hell spoken of. What is the layout of the underworld?
1: Well, we're seeing into that realm. Um, to borrow a phrase from Paul, as as into a gla- as as though into a glass darkly. You know, we're looking into a a room with everything backwards and insufficiently lit so as i understand it and i'm not this is not a theological hill i will die on but there is a realm uh, at least in the old testament period let me let me back up a little bit we see in ezekiel a really interesting reference to the spirits of the uh, the chiefs of the gibberim being given like a central place in sheol the the land of the dead um and he talks about uh, and uh, isaiah mentions the rephaim rising up to greet the rebel from Eden. Lucifer, Satan, when he's thrown out of Eden. Uh, The shades is the word in English, which, by the way, is why we don't get a lot of this. Um, The word Rephaim in many of our English Bibles has been translated as the shades, the departed, the dead, instead of what they were, Rephaim, which our research suggests was based on an old Akkadian term, meaning the mighty ones. So, there was a place reserved for the, the the spirits of the human dead, and according to Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 32, apparently these chiefs of the gibberim, chiefs of the mighty men, presumably the Rephaim spirits, were were special, set apart. They were something other than just run-of-the-mill dead. And they were in the midst of shale. Tartarus, again, was only reserved. And, and you don't see an equivalent word in, um, in Hebrew, but clearly... The Hebrews were aware of Tartarus. There's a there's a curious verse section of Isaiah chapter 26 that uh, we go into in in the book that suggests that when the Septuagint translators, those are the Jewish scholars who translated the older Hebrew texts into a Greek Old Testament. A couple hundred years before Jesus, uh, they understood that uh, there's a reference to the land of the ungodly or the land of the impious, which scholars looking at that text, that's Isaiah 26 verse 19, can only refer to Tartarus, the land of the Titans, um, who Jewish scholars understood, you know, okay, yeah, the Titans, they were the watchers, they're the ones who created the giants, the Nephilim, the mighty men who were of old, who are mentioned earlier in Isaiah 26 around verse 13 where um, in fact we cite that verse I I believe on the cover of the book you know maybe on the back cover they are dead they shall not rise Uh, they are Rephaim you know they will not rise so there's some different conceptions of of the way the underworld is laid out Uh, the Old Testament period shale the Greeks would have another layer called Tartarus as far below Hades shale as Earth is below heaven reserved for supernatural threats. And clearly we see that uh, depicted in the abyss or described in the abyss, which is where the uh, angels who sinned are kept in, in chains in gloomy darkness until the judgment. That's uh, a reference in Second Peter 2, but also in uh, Jude, verse, uh, verses 6 and 7. Uh, that's the abyss that we see open up in Revelation 9. Uh, I think these entities we're talking about, these watchers, apkalo, titans of Greek mythology, they're coming out in Revelation 9, and they won't be happy. Uh, we tend to think of the Titans as uh, anthropomorphic, you know, looking human. And the Greek myths really don't say anything different. But when you look at the Mesopotamian images of the Apkalu, uh, there were three different types. One looked like a, a humanoid with wings, a bearded man with wings. Another looked like a, uh, a humanoid with a, uh, like the head of a hawk uh, and wings. And the third was the, uh, a guy who looks like he's wearing a fish cloak with a fish head on top of his head, like a hat almost, and then a fish cloak down his back. that's That's been incorrectly identified as the god Dagon for probably 150 years, thanks to um, uh, Alexander Hislop and his book The Two Babylons. That was not... Dagon, that was one of the Apkalu, and you know, we, one of the most fun things we did when we were in um, England earlier this year, we visited the British Museum and we got to see carvings inscriptions showing these three types of Apkalu and then little Apkalu figurines that were planted <laughs> around around the walls, you know, beneath the floor, but around the walls of houses in ancient Mesopotamia as um, magical wards against evil. So these little fish cloak things about this tall, you know, just wow. planted all around the inside of that. It's like,
0: yeah. So that one always threw me off, that fish cloak guy. Because you have the two hybrid looking things, and then you just have a fish cloak guy.
1: Right, but that makes sense, because according to Mesopotamian myth, the Apkalu were sent forth by the god Enki, uh, and his temple was located just above his domain, or his his home, which was the Absu, which was a a freshwater reservoir beneath his temple, and Absu is where we get the word abyss. So he was the lord of the abyss, and he sent forth these things to bring the gifts of civilization to humanity. Everything from how to be nice to your neighbor to how to make beer. So, mm-hmm. but according to the uh, the Babylonian creation myth, their chief god, Marduk, lost his temper at one point, sent a flood, and then banished the Apkalo to the abyss. It's like, okay, well, there you've got the story again. You've got the flood that that, that destroys all of humanity except for one family, and then these supernatural entities who taught humanity things we weren't supposed to know, banished by the, by the supreme god to the abyss. Same story, but twisted for pagan consumption.
0: Wow. Yeah, that, that, that's so important for people to get, I feel like. Because once you get that,
1: everything opens up as well. Like All kinds of other avenues open up. Now, I was going to say, and here's an interesting thing that Sharon and I stumbled onto just a few months ago, and that is the, uh, the, the amount of time that the flood, when it swept over the land, In in Genesis, I believe it's chapter 8, tells us that it was 150 days that the ark was on the waters before the water abated enough, receded enough for the ark to to come to rest. So 150 days, the the, the, uh, world was inundated. Five months in a lunar calendar. When you go to Revelation 9, okay, now bear in mind, during those five months, these entities, these watchers, these titans were chained in the abyss watching their children these hybrids human angel hybrids the nephilim destroyed in this flood and since they were supposedly of extraordinary power according to the myths and stories it may have taken five months for them to finally you know all drown but the point is these entities were below the earth while their children above were being destroyed in revelation 9 these things come out of the pit And again, just like the Mesopotamian concept where there's all, you know, like the fish-human hybrid, the human-bird hybrids. These things coming out of the pit are all uh, what scholars would call theriomorphic human-animal hybrids. But you'll notice they are given power to torment those without the seal of God in their forehead for five months. It's a reversal of what happened in Genesis. They're given permission to torment, to take revenge, essentially, on the children of men just as their children were destroyed except in Revelation 9 people will seek death and it will flee from them so nothing happens in the in the Bible it seems without a without a bookend there's always wow. another shoe that drops and and basically puts it the exclamation point on the story and I was gonna say and as we go through the Bible and understand now that this that these demons that these spirits of the Nephilim created by the watchers play such an important role, you begin to see connections that are like obvious now that didn't make any sense before. In Isaiah, there are a couple of weird sections. Isaiah um, 57, I believe. Now I'm going to have to look this up so I'm not steering people wrong. Isaiah 65, I know, is one of them. It makes reference to uh, people eating pig's flesh in gardens and things like this. This relates to the cult of venerating the dead, which, again, was a, a real snare to the Israelites. In fact, even before they crossed over the Jordan River, when they were on the plains of Moab. The uh, the Bible tells us they they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and we show in veneration and I did that in a previous book as well that Peor is based on a Hebrew word that means cleft or gap or opening. Um, on the Exodus route, a couple of the places they stopped make reference to the spirits of the dead. One called Ovoth, O-B-O-T-H, literally means spirits of the dead. There's another called I I E ha avarim I-Y-E dash A-B-A-R-I-M, I-E Ha Avarim. Now, Avarim means travelers. In fact, our tour guide, Yeshai, when we were in Israel last two years, keeps calling everybody on the bus, Avarim, Avarim, come, come. Mm -hmm. Like, well, Yeshai, you might want to not use that word that because it (laughs) doesn't mean but um even Mount Nebo, where Moses got his last look at the Holy Land, you know, his only look at the Holy Land. You know, climb Mount Nebo. Well, we've been to Mount Nebo twice now. You can see the Dead Sea straight ahead of you, you can see Jericho. And at, we found out later, at about 2 o'clock, and we, we pointed it out on this year's tour, you can see the ruins of Sodom. Okay, the ruins of Sodom. It's on a hill overlooking the plains of Moab. Well, when the Israelites were there, they began worshipping this deity. And Avarim travelers come to find out, and again, this is one of these texts translated from the ancient Amorite kingdom of Ugarit, only within the last 40, 50 years, is a term literally applied to the Rephaim spirits summoned in necromancy rituals to the sanctuary, the threshing floor of El, which can only be Mount Hermon. And they, why are they called travelers? Not just because they have to travel ways to get there, but because they cross over. They travel from one plane of existence, the land of the dead, to the land of the living. And it's believed that when they arrived at the threshing floor of El, the name of El, which is like you know, not just his reputation. Mike Heiser does a, an explanation of the name theology in the Old Testament. It's convoluted, convoluted, and I won't get into it here, but it's believed that the name of El will revivify the Rephaim, will resurrect them, restore them to life. And these texts literally say that the Rephaim will travel. You know, They, they mount their chariots. They travel one day and then another, and they arrive at dawn of the third day to be resurrected on the threshing floor of the Canaanite creator God. Like, okay, so that's what travelers are. So here we've got the Israelites on the Exodus about to enter the Holy Land, camping at a place called ruins of the travelers. Moses climbing Mount Nebo, which in Deuteronomy is called this mountain of the Avarim, this mountain of the travelers. So it's a place somehow connected to these Rephaim spirits. Within eyesight of Sodom, which had been destroyed about 400 and some odd years before Moses and the Israelites got there. Now, this is re- things really get weird, but I think awesome. The uh, scientific director for the archeological dig at this site called Tal el-Hammam, which is about six miles northeast of the Dead Sea, Dr. Philip Sylvia tells me that there's about 1,500, or there used to be about 1,500 dolmens at the base of this, this hill that Sodom was on. Now, dolmens are these megalithic burial, structures, like two big slabs of rock with a tabletop slab across the top. I mean, it looks like little miniature stone hinges. There are more of them in the Jordan Valley than anywhere on Earth, and there are more of them at the base of Sodom than anywhere in the Jordan Valley. Now Sharon and I have been fascinated by these dolmens for a while. We're doing some deep research on this for a project in 2020. What, how were they oriented? I mean, were they oriented astronomically? Were they or, What were what what, what they pointed at? I mean, is there some significance to these things? And I asked Dr. Sylvia this in a podcast interview I did back in February. He said, no, they all appear to be oriented toward the temple in Sodom. Like, oh, hmm. could that be the temple of Baal Peor? Hmm. He said, do you mind if I share that with the rest of the team? Like. Please, because I want to know if I'm right. (laughs) I've not found any inscriptions in this temple yet. But think about that. 1,500 of these burial monuments, these megalithic structures, probably put there by the Rephaim tribes from back in Abraham's day. Moses and the Israelites get there. The city is still ruined because, according to Dr. Sylvia, when whatever it was that meteorite that blew up in the sky like Tunguska back in the days of Lot and Abraham, it flooded this area with 36% salt water so that nothing would grow there except for acacia. And if you check the Bible, the book of Numbers, it says when they were camping there, the place was called Abel Shittim. Shittim is the Hebrew word for acacia. It's salt tolerant. It was the only thing that would grow there. So Abel means meadow of the acacia. So there they are, Plains of Moab, meadows of the acacia, looking up at this ruined city, 150 feet you know, above the, the plains, with all of these ruined funerary monuments at the base of this ruined city. Oh, ruins of the travelers interesting. But here's the other connection that we didn't even make until later. Moses, according to the Bible, was buried after he got his look at the Holy Land, at the Promised Land, from the mountain of the travelers, and he was buried on the plains of Moab. But nobody knew where the burial site was. But in the book of Jude, we're told that Michael contended with Satan for the body of Moses. Now, is it possible that Satan thought, because he was Lord of the dead, remember Isaiah 14, he was cast out of heaven and came down and the Rephaim rose up to greet him in Sheol, that Satan, because he was Lord of the dead, thought that he had a right to Moses' body because it was buried in, on his territory, the Valley of the Travelers, which is what Ezekiel calls it in Ezekiel 39. Now, who joined Jesus on Mount Hermon which is the threshing floor of El, the sanctuary of El for the Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Yeah. (laughs) Moses buried buried in the Valley of the Travelers. Now where was Elijah caught up to heaven? Right after he crossed the Jordan River from Jericho, the same place. Wow. The, The Travelers. And then he goes to the mountain. Jesus climbs the mountain sacred to the Canaanite creator god El where he lived with his consort Asherah the dragon lady the serpent lady overlooking Bashan the land of the serpent and seventy sons of El and he's joined by the two men connected to the valley of the travelers east of the sea. This valley where the spirits of the travelers the Rephaim were known to cross over and he brings them there for this big cosmic eye poke. Here I am. What are you going to do about it?
0: <laughs>
1: and Ezekiel 39:11 says that that's where the war of Gog, that's where God prepares a place for burial for the hordes of Magog that are coming to do battle against Jerusalem because I believe that this uh, the war of Gog and Magog ends at Armageddon, which is for, you know, the Temple Mount, Zion. Uh, But this is where the hordes of Magog will be buried, the valley of the travelers east of the sea, and it will block the travelers. And what does that mean? Well, I think when you read 1 Corinthians 15 and realize that our ultimate destiny is to be physically resurrected, I think when we're resurrected, the travelers, the Rephaim spirits, the demons, they're blocked. They're still dead. So it, it all, I in our view, it all fits together. And it's a key point of, really, it's a key element of Christian theology that we've never been taught. Yeah. And that whole section of, of the book, the very end, man, that,
0: that uh, one part of it had me in tears. I forget which part, I think towards the end, but it's just, it's, that part is so inspiring and it's so like, it's such a payoff for all the, 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 the research and, and connecting all the dots. And then when you get to that, it's just like, like, wow, it, it makes it very, very real. It makes the whole battle very, very real.
1: Well, you know, praise God because, I mean, he's the one who put all that stuff in there. So, you know, it's I, I wish we could say we had you know, invented this stuff and come up with it because then we could be proud of it. But uh, we're just humbled that, uh, you know, God has opened our eyes to see some things here that uh, you know, we're not trying to invent a new way of understanding the Bible. We're just trying to go back to understanding it the way the prophets and the apostles did because they knew all this stuff we just lost it over the last 1500 years or so and, and this, right when you understand it drew it's it's like it's finally getting it like hey we're we're in the middle of a of a quest we're in the middle of you know lord of the rings and you know but but it's real yeah yeah it's uh
0: you, the a lot of this research too it, you'll read stuff in the bible and you'll graze over it or you'll kind of just you'll you'll know that there's something there you're just not getting or you don't even catch on to it and then when you dig into this stuff, it's just like it fills in all the gaps. You, you realize why this thing that was seemingly pointless was actually directed at a pagan deity or was actually keeping them away from their practices. And you're just like, wow, like th- this makes that I could tell you from reading this book, Isaiah is a completely ominous A uh, couple chapters 14 and, and a couple of the other ones. It is completely ominous when you picture these shades raising up to meet him. And there's no there's no unity among them they're just they, they yeah. drag them down with them and it, it's insane it's it's crazy
1: yeah yeah hey you're just as weak as we are you know but you realize that this was part of the pagan worship around ancient Israel I mean Isaiah obviously was writing a polemic against these spirits just as Ezekiel was in Ezekiel 32 uh, Ezekiel 28 but the pagan neighbors of ancient Israel were worshiping these entities you know, the, the worshiping their ancestors, what they believed were their ancestors, but they were really the spirits of these, these demons. But they paid special attention to the kings of old. This Kispum ritual that they performed every month on the 30th was done twice a month for their kings because, you know, if dead grandpa was angry when he's not fed properly, well, dead king was even more dangerous. And so we really need to appease him. And we get into the concept and this confirms something that we were actually, that we read in, uh, Carl Gallup's book, uh, Gods of Ground Zero, about uh, Garden of Eden being right there at Jerusalem. We started digging into that and found, yeah, Carl was right, but it's even more than that. The whole concept of the garden was corrupted by the pagans under the influence of these principalities and powers. Because the garden became um, not a place to grow vegetables for for dinner, but a, a place to venerate and worship the kings who had been elevated from just uh, rank and file dead to become one of the Rephaim. He aspires to become one of the Rephaim or one of the Council of the Ditanu in the Amorite text. Well, the Council of the Titans. They believed that they had power in the afterlife and uh, they wanted their kings to become them. And that is why we uh, point out the Isaiah's Uh, special attention to this cult. And I was right, it is Isaiah 57. Um, When you begin at uh, verse 3 of Isaiah 57 you read a whole section there that we really take apart in the book Veneration because it means more when you understand what the pagans were doing than we read into it. But the last couple, two of the the wickedest kings of of Judah, Manasseh who was the son of Hezekiah, who we might remember for um, burning his son in the fire to Molech, and Manasseh's son Amon, uh Those are the only two kings of Judah who in the Old Testament are described as being buried in the garden of Uzzah rather than in the uh, the tombs of their fathers in the city of David. And why would that be significant? Well, there are scholars who suggest that it's because Manasseh and Amon had adopted the veneration, this practice of venerating the spirits of the Rephaim. And so they were going to be interred in the garden, which we show in the book was a um, is supposed to be a a physical representation on Earth of, of paradise. In fact, the word that we get uh, for paradise uh, comes from an old uh, Persian dialect, but it was a cognate, which means same word, different language. or a Semitic word, the Semitic word gan, which means garden, but in its original context, this, uh, this Persian word paradiza meant an enclosed, protected space, maybe a ramparted enclosure, like inside castle walls reserved for the king, but reserved for the king, except in these pagan practices, that's where the kings would be buried in their tombs and these rituals would be performed to offer them sacrifices as well in the afterlife. And so, and isn't, you know, the the tombs uh, that in the Garden of Uzzah, the king's garden, we know where it is in Jerusalem today, in fact. It's at the bottom of the uh, city of David. They wanted to take this practice and bring it right to God's holy mountain in Jerusalem, which makes sense of a, a verse in the Old Testament where God uh, condemns the uh, the Jews and say, you know, the, the bodies of your dead kings, or, you know, take them away, take them far from me. I, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the verse memorized. But again, weird things like that that don't make any sense suddenly when you understand the the historical and religious context around ancient Israel suddenly make all the sense in the world. So you, you mentioned castle walls, and one
0: of the pleasant surprises of the book was when you get into the Arthurian legends, because, you know, my background, I worked at Medieval Times, I did all that, that stuff, so that that's what one of my areas of study that I enjoy the most is, and then I find it in here, and I'm like, wow, that's awesome, like, what's this all about?
1: Yeah, well, that was Sharon's perspective, and I give her credit for looking as, so I tend to look, you know, in a very linear fashion. You know, where, what's the research say and um, how does it relate to uh, what we've got in study here? Um, she contributed some really amazing stuff on, uh, on, well, for example, the threshing floor of El as well, which uh, helps to amplify and make more sense of the uh, Amorite texts about summoning the Rephaim. But when you look at the uh, the Arthurian legends and connecting it to the, uh, the goddess Inanna, of the ancient world, who's known by other names like Astarte in the Bible, Ishtar of Babylon, Aphrodite of Greece, Venus of Rome, she um, was not just a goddess of love, but she was a goddess of carnality and a goddess of uh, mindless violence. An entity whose whose goal has been since the beginning to to break down the the gender roles that God created uh, and established for for men and women and for children, and uh, you see that in uh, the way the Arthurian legend. Uh, plays out, Arthur, the, especially the way it's been retold in in recent years by uh, the likes of Marion Zimmer Bradley, uh, but also Arthur as a sort of uh, demigod himself, who goes into occultation or suspended animation uh, to to return someday as the hero, you know, in Britain's greatest hour of need. So there, there's some different aspects of that story that, uh, uh, when you start pulling on those threads, kind of go back to this idea of these. Uh, these mighty men who were of old, who will return someday, who will be revivified when the right words are spoken, when the stars align correctly. It, it's, uh, there, there's a little more to it than just a, uh, an historic character.
0: Wow. So did you guys go there for research for the Red Wing saga?
1: <laughs> uh, to uh, the, uh, the site of uh, Arthur's tomb. Or no no just uh, yeah. to
0: that area in general when you talked about going there in the in the book you mentioned
1: absolutely yes uh, Glastonbury uh, is uh, plays a, an important role in the Arthurian myth uh, the Glastonbury tour some scholars believe was the uh, the inspiration for the Isle of Avalon um, and at the uh, the the ancient uh, Abbey of Glastonbury there was a, a grave there that uh, was purported to be the grave of Arthur and Guinevere or the graves of Arthur and Guinevere but Essentially, that was made up by the, the monks. They had a, um, a fire there at the abbey in the 12th century and they needed to raise money to rebuild the roof or something. And so suddenly they discovered, hey, during the renovation process, we discovered the grave of Arthur. So come to Glastonbury and see. And so the the hotel that we stayed in was built in the late 14th century, I believe, 14th or late 15th, to accommodate pilgrims who were coming to visit the abbey so they could you know, pay homage to King Arthur. You know no evidence that there was any grave there i think <laughs> the monks just made it to raise money but yes we did go there for the red wing saga we also saw pendragon castle oh wow which again was purportedly the the site of uh, uther's castle i had always thought that uh, uther was connected to cornwall but and and he is in some myths but you know like george washington who slept everywhere on the east coast uh, there are a lot of places that lay claim to arthur and uther uh <laughs> in uh, england and even even up into scotland so, yeah, Sharon researched that. And uh, so we made that part of the tour specifically for that reason.
0: So you just said Scotland. That reminds me about, you know, the Red Wing saga, one of the main characters from Scotland. But before we go, I want to talk about your partner in crime. So as I'm reading these these books, your books, um, I started reading her books. And me and my wife, we each just finished one. So she finished the first one and we, we went to go read it a while back, but we were busy. So we, we came back to it. So I blew through that one and then I blew through the second one and she just finished the first one and we are loving it And and when I read them, I'm like they have to be like sharing information because so much of the Red Wing Saga is straight Based from a lot of your research is is that just how it works because you guys are talking about stuff And you know, you're both just kind of aware of what what the research is
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing how much of the stuff that she has found have wound up really being important to what I've written, um, especially with the connection between um, you know Mount Hermon and uh, and Mecca, Mount Hermon and uh, the the practice of circumambulation as a ritual, um, she found that as she was researching the work of Sir Charles Warren, who was the uh, uh, the the explorer, uh, archaeologist, and uh, engineer with the, uh, the British military, who climbed Mount Hermon in September of 1869, found. A low stone wall there. I mean, the temple had been there for a while. People knew about the temple, but he found the the stela inside the temple uh, that was engraved in ancient Greeks, uh, carved in ancient Greek. By the order of the Most High and Holy God, those who swore an oath proceed from here. Well, that's a reference to the Watchers. Now, this stela, being in Greek, only goes back probably to the 4th century B.C., you know, after Alexander the Great conquered the the Levant. But... um, it shows that the greeks understood the connection between mount hermon and these angelic beings who came down and made a mutual pact to do this thing that should have been forbidden but what warren also found that no one else had mentioned previously was this low stone wall that forced you to approach the summit of hermon in a uh, in a circular pattern counterclockwise and uh, warren who was a pretty sharp guy connected it to the practice of circling the kaaba in mecca counterclockwise. So, that was really interesting, but of course she found that because she was following the career of Sir Charles Warren, who um, 19 years later was the superintendent of Metropolitan Police Scotland Yard when Jack the Ripper started his killing. And Jack the Ripper, of course, is uh, where the Red Wings saga takes off. Wow, so she found that after she looked at him up for the Jack the Ripper stuff? Right. During during her research on Sir Charles Warren to find out more about this guy who was the head of the police who were investigating these murders in the East End, she stumbled onto this about Warren and his connection to Mount Hermon. It's like, well, isn't that interesting? A what? connection between Mount Hermon and <laughs> Jeff the Ripper?
0: Yeah, so, yeah that's that just
1: insane. <laughs> so yes, she, she finds a lot of stuff that she feeds to me and uh, of course, I just talk a lot. She, <laughs> she thinks things through in her head. I, I have to verbalize stuff to actually think, so
0: just to fill people in, uh, the second book starts with one, Charles Warren or, or someone, one of his colleagues, I believe, or either him or one of his colleagues, unboxing that Stella. And, and it talks right. about, you know, where it's from. And and then I, when I read Veneration, finished it last night, it talks about the actual account in there. So it's like, for anyone who, who likes this research, her series is like the perfect mental break to... To, but but to stay in that same mindset to stay in the mindset of spiritual warfare to stay in the mindset of something that you could actually use in your life aside from just you know a throwaway book or something so it's it's really exciting to read all those it, it's cool seeing them line up and there's even one time I, I saw one of the names of one of the the characters in there and i noticed and I, without spoiling it but his last name i was like i, I kind of know where what, what this guy had like what his backstory may be from the last name but it's really cool you you guys do invaluable work and and it really like like i said brings all these crazy verses in the bible alive verses that you didn't even know were important or that you thought were dry it brings them to life and then when you read her her red wing saga it's just a blast and it's it's very great so i just want to thank you guys for for putting all the effort and time into that
1: no it's it's well it's a joy to do what we do and it's exciting because as you Found, once you start seeing these things and seeing the connections the realization that you're, you're in something much bigger than yourself is is really exciting and humbling at the same time.
0: So is there anything else you want to touch on before we go?
1: Just remember that uh, even though this stuff may seem intimidating or scary when you begin to realize that these entities that are, well, that, that hate us uh, are out there, they're real that God also has his loyal angels who are out there and they're real as well, and they are fighting for us, fighting for you every single day. We are part of this fight through prayer and through trying to live uh, in a way that honors him. That, that is how we serve in this battle, by helping those who are wounded on this battlefield, who may not even realize that they're in the middle of this war, to get them off the battlefield, behind our lines, and to show them the love that Jesus Christ showed us through his sacrifice so that they can join us in eternity. That's our mission on this battlefield. And there are days when it seems like it's more than we can bear. But as Paul wrote, just remember that the glory that is to come will make the suffering that we endure today as nothing. So we're in a war. That's why there's pain, there's suffering. He created us all with free will, even these entities who have chosen to rebel, and there is a day coming when all of this will be put right, and justice will be restored to this earth.
0: Wow, praise God for that. Well, thank you for coming on, Derek. Drew, it's an honor, thank
1: you. Wow, that was pretty rad, wasn't it? Yep, it was. So,
0: now we are going to wrap it up. Thank you guys for watching. It was a pleasure to do that interview. Derek has some awesome insight And the Gilberts themselves make some great connections to the Bible that really, like I said, really bring the Bible to life. So for our paid content, we're going to talk about the first book in the Red Wing Saga, Blood Lies, written by Derek's wife, Sharon. If you have not become a member yet of Daily Renegade, well, you should because it is an alternative to Netflix. It is great. They donate to three charities and I think one children's hospital. It's basically an effort to get us away from the... All-encompassing YouTube where they are trying to control us more and more as the days go by So I think the membership is like 10 a month something cheap Anyways sign up because then you get cool content like what we're about to do. We're about to do an overview of this book, which I've read So yeah, did you read it probably not? Not that it's competition, but if it was I read it. So anyways, thanks guys and as always stay rad God bless